0: Let your requests be made known unto God, and the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, shall defend your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Thou wilt keep him in perfect peace, whose mind is stayed on thee, because he trusteth in thee. Before we begin our study of God's word this morning, we need to make sure that we are in fellowship. Scripture teaches us that whenever we sin... We're out of fellowship with the Lord. Of course, the first issue is salvation. Once we put our faith alone in Christ alone, at that instant we are saved, cleansed from all sin. And at that instant we're in fellowship with the Lord. But any time we sin after that, we're out of fellowship. We don't lose salvation. But we are out of fellowship. We grieve the Spirit, the Scripture says, quench the Spirit. And the only solution is 1 John 1.9. If we confess our sins, God is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all Unrighteousness. So we always take a few moments of silent prayer before we begin to give you an opportunity to confess any sin to the Lord in the privacy of your uh, priesthood in silent prayer, and then I will open in prayer. Let's pray. Father, sometimes we forget what a privilege it is to be able to freely gather together and to study your word, that throughout the history of man, throughout the history of the church age, many times this has been a, a rare event in the lives of, of believers, because of persecution, because of, of uh, government interference, this has not always been the case. In fact, in many instances there has been uh, prevention persecution of believers. Father, we thank you for the freedom that we have in this country, for those who preceded us who were willing to make the ultimate sacrifice to go to war, to give their life if necessary in order to preserve and provide the freedoms that we cherish so dearly every day. Father, during this time of crisis in our nation's history, this war against terrorism, this potential of war against Iraq, we continue to pray for our national leaders, for our president, for political civil leaders, for our military leaders, that they might make accurate decisions, that you would provide them with the ability to make uh, good decisions, to receive good intelligence, that they can have the facts necessary to make the right decisions. We pray for our troops, that you would uh, give them courage and boldness. We pray for the enemy, that they would uh, make mistakes and that we would take advantage of those mistakes. And we pray that if we do go to war, that it would be quick and that we would be able to accomplish our objectives in a a timely manner. Father, we pray for us as we gather together to study your word that we would be challenged with respect to our own battle, and that is the battle of the soul, the spiritual warfare we're engaged in day in and day out to simply defeat the sin nature within us, to uh, live the spiritual life to advance to spiritual maturity we pray that we might be challenged and encouraged by the things that we study today we pray this in Christ's name amen open your bibles with me to first corinthians chapter 10 first corinthians chapter 10 i just returned from two day trip down to uh, over to chicago where we tried something new with WHW. Now, WHW stands for Williams, Harris, and Waddles, the three men who founded this particular training ministry for for pastors. And it's primarily to black pastors and laymen. And this year we tried something new. We had a regional conference in uh, Chicago. And so most of the people that came were just from that area. About 80% of the attendees, I think there were 350 that registered, And about probably 200 of them were pastors. Of those pastors, about 80% of them had never been to anything like this before. And it was quite a shock to many of them. Unfortunately, we live in a world where many pastors, not just black pastors, but also in the white community, do not go through a process of training. People get this absurd notion that if they just feel called that they uh, are therefore qualified to uh, get in a pulpit. Or if they can pass some sort of exam by some pastor, that they can get in the pulpit. But they don't know anything about studying the Word. They don't know anything about the original languages. They don't know anything about theology in many cases. And the result is you have the blind leading the blind and the sheep leading the sheep. And it's terrible. And it's always fun and this is why I'm involved in this ministry. It's always great to see the reaction from some of these men when they come. It's everything from being stunned to just being uh, downright sorrowful. There's some of them just realize very profoundly how uh, th- that their unworthiness to even be pastors because they don't know the Bible and they've never learned how to study and it. They come back and you hear men say that after they came to this conference, they realized for the first time how little they knew about the Bible and before that they thought they understood Christianity fairly well and they discovered that they don't have a thimble full of knowledge. They've never heard of any of these skills or techniques. So it is always gratifying to go and to begin to introduce these men to these study skills and the importance of, of uh, getting an into the word in ways that they've never thought about before and helping them understand how to study. So that was... That was fun and exciting, and, of course, after six years, no, not six years, this six times, five years, of being involved with uh, these conferences, I've developed a lot of very close uh, friendships with many of the pastors there. Of course, Curtis was there, and uh, Curtis was here, of course, covering for me when I was gone at Christmas, and Curtis just comes up to me and he says, Doc, you've got such a great church. They're just such nice people and uh i can't remember the name of the man the young fellow who was with him but but he was there as well and and he came up to me and just to comment on how what a great time they had while while they were here and the word is spreading and i you know ra and R. dr ra williams who's the head of the ministry and uh, henry brown who's his assistant pastor who could pastor any church he wanted to but he just has his niche there working for ra both of them came up and said. You know when am I going to get to come to New England? <laughs> so we'll have to work that in eventually, but it was it was a very good time and and I'm looking forward to again to going out there to l a in October for that conference First corinthians ten in fact, I spoke on this a little bit while I was there.'s a great context or a great section to teach the importance of doing contextual study when you're examining the scripture. In fact, I made a mistake last time at the end of chapter nine. I just didn't even think in terms of the overall context of this section so I want to go back and pick it up to make one particular point which I'll make as we go through the review and introduction. The theme of chapters eight through ten has to do with doubtful things. Chapter 8 clearly talks about the doubtful things, introduces the issue that they were facing in Corinth of whether or not to eat the meat in the temple, meat that had been sacrificed to idols. This was a standard operating procedure in Corinth that any any meat, the butcher shop basically was located on the temple grounds, whether it was a temple to uh, uh, Aphrodite or to Apollo or whatever pagan god there was, they had the... They would have sacrifices there, and the meat would be dedicated to the god. So there is this religious element that is associated with the meat, and the meat market, and they would have a place there where you could eat, was also in close proximity to the inner areas of the temple where, where they would engage in the various fertility rituals with the temple prostitutes. So there's this close connection there, and it's one thing to go down to the temple and just have a good steak, but normally just going to the temple and having a good steak was associated with also going in and enjoying yourself with the temple prostitutes. So there's this intimate connection between the activity of eating there and eating the meat sacrificed to idols, the sexual immorality that was involved, and the idolatry. Now, Paul recognizes the fact that simply eating the meat that was sacrificed to the idols is not a problem in and of itself. It's a non-issue. The problem was with the associations that came with it and the problems that that might present to a weak believer who would not understand the differences and to simply see somebody eating meat would just be a justification in his mind to not only partake of the good beef that was there but to also go on in and enjoy the other elements of the of the temple so paul argues in chapter 8 that the role of the of the mature believer is to apply the problem-solving device of impersonal love for other believers to the weaker brother. This is the law of love, that it has a higher, that represents or recognizes a higher goal, and that is the maturity of this believer and not to present something in his life that he could use to justify stumbling and that it would hinder his his spiritual life. Now, the emphasis here is on knowledge. Look at chapter 8, verse 1. Concerning things offered to knowledge. I want you to count, count off with me. Uh, now, concerning things offered to idols, we know, number one, that we all have knowledge. Number two, knowledge puffs up. That's the third mention of knowledge. And if anyone thinks that he knows, that's the fourth mention of knowledge, anything. He knows, the fifth mention of knowledge, nothing yet as he ought to know. That's the sixth mention of knowledge. In verse three, if anyone loves God, this one is known by God. That's the seventh mention of knowledge. Therefore, concerning the eating of things offered to idols, we know, that's the eighth mention of knowledge, that an idol is nothing in the world, and that there is no other God but one. Then you said, skip down to verse 7. However, there is not in everyone that knowledge. That's our ninth mention of knowledge. And verse 11, our 10 mentions knowledge again. And verse 11 says, and because of your knowledge shall the weak brother perish. So 11 times you have knowledge mentioned in the course of those eleven verses there 's a law of proportion in the study of scripture that if and repetition and obviously the emphasis here is on knowledge. The fact is that the Corinthians, in their arrogant way, were emphasizing their knowledge. they thought they knew it all simply because they had amassed a tremendous amount of academic knowledge, but it wasn 't necessary even academic biblical knowledge as we 've studied in the past in terms of the background to this this uh, this book that they had their like Greek culture as a whole, especially uh, Athens, they were uh, enchanted with intellectualism, and they were enchanted with all of the intellectual stimulation presented by the various philosophies at that time, particularly Stoicism and Epicureanism, as well as as uh, Platonism. So they're they're very uh, they're very much stimulated by this and they emphasize just the intellectual gymnastics that they go through arguing, logic, presenting all of these things and they brought that cultural, that sort of human viewpoint, cultural baggage with them to Christianity. So for them it's just knowledge. It's just this real emphasis. We have this knowledge, we know we have a right to this. Why should we Give up anything? We have a right to this. It's legitimate. There's nothing wrong with eating the eating the meat that's served at the meat market down there, that's that served at the restaurant, at the temple. There's absolutely nothing wrong with that. It's legitimate. We have a right to that. Why should we give it up? They just need to learn something. These younger, younger, uh, weaker believers just need to have have knowledge because we have all knowledge, and that's why Paul stated in verse 1, that knowledge, this academic, arrogant knowledge, this simple intellectualism that they had, uh, the word there is just simply gnosis. It's not the other Greek word that is, is important for spiritual growth knowledge, which is the Greek word epinosis. Just this academic, intellectual gnosis puffs up, but love edifies. Now, in the course of the argument, we have to follow this. Paul is so rigorous in his logic. If you don't, If we don't pay attention to the context, we will miss the emphasis here. Paul argues mature believers need to be willing to restrict or even permanently give up legitimate activities because they might hinder the spiritual growth of a weaker or immature believer. Now, the Corinthian response is, why should we do that? I mean, it's our legitimate right. So Paul turns the tables on them, as we've seen in chapter 9. He puts himself in the position of a stronger believer and puts the Corinthians in the position of a weaker believer. What a masterful stroke. And he says, now, I gave up certain legitimate rights that I had. He says, do we don't, do we not, meaning we as apostles, do we not have a right to eat and drink? That is to be supported logistically by, by the congregations we minister to. Do we not have a right also to take along a believing wife as do the other apostles? The point is that all the other apostles were legitimately uh, being supported by the congregations and the people to whom they ministered in the gospel ministry, not only in evangelism but also in uh, planting churches and establishing churches. But Paul says that he has foregone that legitimate right to ask for financial support from the congregation of Corinth because he knew there would be a distraction for them. And that it would hinder them. So he didn't even mention it. And we looked at the passage at the end of Philippians 4, where Paul told the Philippians that they were the only church in Greece that contributed financially to his support. So he established a his business in uh, Corinth, which was making tents. It was a commercial enterprise. Don't get the idea that this is a small thing where Paul's out in the back somewhere with some canvas or leather, and he's just sewing these tents himself. He would have hired workers and laborers to work for him. He would have established a going business that would have contributed a good deal to what he was, to his financial support. But his argument here is that I had a right to expect support. In verse 14 he says the Lord has commanded that those who preach the gospel should live from the gospel. So his argument is I had a right to this, but I gave it, I not only gave it up, I didn't even mention it. And now I'm mentioning it not to get you to support me financially, but to make the point that mature believers should at times give up or restrict or eliminate certain legitimate activities in their life for a higher goal. That's the point of the illustration. Last time we looked at the illustration from athletics at the end of the chapter in verses 24 through 27. And I spent most of the time talking about crowns. I spent, I lo- We looked at the doctrine of crowns. We looked at the doctrine of rewards. But I failed to lo- locate this into the argument of the passage. See, what Paul uses that argument for in the running of the race is not simply to emphasize the, our personal sense of eternal destiny, that we're making decisions today in light of eternity, but he's t- using this as an illustration to the Corinthians from just pagan Gentile examples that even athletes give up legitimate activities in life in order to be able to win the prize. That's the purpose of that illustration, is that these athletes are willing to uh, go live in an isolated training village for ten months, they're willing to restrict their diet. They have every right to eat whatever they want to eat. But for those 10 months, they have to eat exactly what they're told to eat in the gymnasium. They have to do everything that the uh, trainer tells them to do, and they therefore give up legitimate rights in order to achieve the goal of simply winning this withered celery wreath. So if they're willing to give up rights for nothing more than a withered celery, wild celery wreath, shouldn't we as believers be willing at times to give up legitimate activities, legitimate rights in our own life because of the impact it, it has on someone else that is a weaker believer? So. He uses an example from the pagan culture that even even unbelievers recognize the importance and the need at times to give up legitimate activities that are distractions for yourself, distraction for others in order to win the prize. Now he uses and he introduces a negative example in the 10th chapter. There's a tendency for people to divorce the 10th chapter from the context, but when we get down to verse 14 actually it's brought in in verse 7 but made clear in verse 14 Paul says therefore my beloved flee from idolatry see the problem that the Corinthians were having is that that one of the reasons they weren't willing to give up their right to go to the temple and eat the meat that was there wasn't just because they were interested in a good steak, but they weren't completely sold out to the sufficiency of Christ. And so they were were holding back. There was a hidden agenda on their part. And that was that they were still at a secretive level relying to some degree on the on their on the the false god on the idol they were still engaging in the sexual immorality inside the temple and even for these so-called stronger corinthian believers who had all knowledge they were actually being seduced by going down there and thinking they could just have a have a good stake they were still being seduced into idolatry or at least that was a real potential and so Paul is warning them about that and he goes to the old testament to illustrate how that very same problem was the was a major failure in the life of the nation Israel at the time of the Exodus. So that gives us the overall picture here. He is going to show that, that the reason, perhaps, that you don't want to give up your rights to eat the meat down at the temple is because there's still an element inside of you that is that will succumb to the temptation to idolatry. And so he is going to warn them off, of idolatry and to be very careful and perhaps that even that they're not as strong as they think they are and that they should uh, perhaps be giving up their right to meet simply because they are a, in fact, a weaker brother. Now remember the point I made as we went back through chapter 8, the emphasis on knowledge. And now we come to the first statement in verse 1 where Paul says, Moreover, brethren, I do not want you to be unaware, and the word that's translated, unaware, in the New King James says, is actually the word, the Greek word, agnoe, agnao. A-G-N-O-E, A-G-N-O-E, agnoeo. A-G-N-O-E-O is the verb. The A is, a, is the Negative, and the root comes from gnosis, for knowledge. And so with the negative, it means ignorance. I don't want you to be ignorant. I don't want you to lack knowledge. Actually, this is the word from which we get our English word agnostic, someone who doesn't know or claims that they don't know or can't know. So Paul says, now, I do not want you to be Ignorant! What a slam for the Corinthians and their arrogance, thinking that they know it all. He says, now, I really don't want you to be ignorant. You think you know it all, but you're really ignorant. Paul just doesn't, doesn't pull his punches. He's very subtle, but he just slams it in there. I don't want you to be ignorant, brothers. And he uses the plural of Adelphos, which indicates that they are Fellow believers, they are carnal, they are messed up, they are involved in all kinds of sin, but they are still believers. I do not want you to be ignorant. See, the emphasis in Christianity is on knowledge. It is not on feeling. I just heard a terrible report. When I get to know more about it, I'll give you a little details and name some names. Terrible report from uh, down at the Grace Evangelical Society. Some of you are familiar with Grace Evangelical Society. It's been a great organization for emphasizing grace. But one of the speakers there, who is a well-known man and has published uh, one of the finest books that I've ever read on the Free Grace Gospel, gave a talk for an hour about how he is learning to just feel God, how important it is just to... All the knowledge is great, but sometimes you just have to step back and feel the presence of God. Of course, the first question that should come to your mind is, okay, where in the Bible does it say that we are to feel the presence of God? It doesn't say that. But we live in an era where people, uh, people do not understand how to move from knowledge to reality. And so often what happens with... Uh, theologians who are very cerebral and intellectual is they never actualize that into their spiritual life, and one day they wake up and they feel like something's missing. It's called epinosis. And they feel like something is missing in their life, and in almost every paradigm what you get is some guy's influenced by his wife. And his wife comes along and says, you know, I'm just missing something in my relationship with God. Years ago, there were three men during the 80s, three professors at Dallas Seminary who got involved in, in the Vineyard Movement, which was the, at that time the latest development in, the Penteco- in Pentecostalism in America also called the signs and wonders movement or the third wave movement, and I did a tremendous amount of research on that movement as part of my doctoral work in uh, church history. My emphasis was on history of Pentecostalism in America, and in almost every case... Almost every case, I would say 95% of the cases where you studied these men who had not been Pentecostal, not had any attraction to Pentecostalism or the charismatic movement, in 95% of the cases, these men were influenced to change their views by their wives. This is why Scripture says women are to keep silent in the church, and women are not allowed to teach. Part of the reason, that it goes back to God's role and purpose for uh, women in Genesis chapter 2 and chapter 3. But it's amazing how this has happened, and this speaker at this conference this last week was talking about how he had gone back to reading the medieval mystics, uh, St. John of the Cross, Teresa of Avila, many others. This has become very prevalent and popular in the last 15 years, this emphasis on going back to the medieval mystics to get some idea of a closer uh, experience with God. Now the Bible doesn't know anything about these techniques, but this is something that appeals emotionally to many people, and it is based on, it's not based on knowledge. But the scripture says that the spiritual life is based on knowledge. Romans 12.2 says we are to renew our mind. We're not to be conformed to the world. And yet mysticism and this emphasis on emotion is part of worldly thinking. That's cosmic thinking according to the scripture. But we are to renew our thinking. We are to think correctly. And the only way you can think correctly is to have correct knowledge. The only way you can have correct knowledge is to study the word but it's not merely the acquisition of information about God or information about the Bible. There are some incredible works that have been written by theologians, European theologians, liberal theologians, whom I do not believe are at all saved. they have no understanding of salvation, but they have produced some incredible academic works on Greek or Hebrew, language study, things of that nature. That are quite helpful, yet I doubt they understand anything about the grace of God. It's all academics. And you can learn the Word of God, you can memorize Scripture, you can know the Bible from Genesis 1 to Revelation 22, but that doesn't mean you, you love God or know Him with epinosis knowledge in the soul. Scripture teaches that, as we have studied many times, that uh, I'm, incidentally i 'm going to run out of space in two minutes or less on this overhead. Uh, scripture teaches that what happens is when a pastor teacher teaches the word as we 've studied in our grace learning spiral, that the filling of the under the filling of the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit helps us to understand the truth of God's Word, and we have to exercise our positive volition at that point to understand it. He makes it understandable, but that doesn't mean we understand it. We have to exercise our volition to think about it and comprehend it. When we believe it, then it becomes gnosis. Gnosis, which is simply academic, academic knowledge, and this is in, enters into what the Bible calls the mind or the noose, N-O-U-S. But at the core of our mind is what the Bible calls the heart, the cardia, the innermost part of our thinking, K-A-R-D-I-A. When it becomes gnosis, that is understood knowledge, academic knowledge, at that point we choose whether or not to believe it. This is mine. This is what I believe. It's not what's in my, what my church believes. It's not what my pastor believes. It's not what I'm comfortable with. This is what I believe. This is my belief. This is what I'm holding on to. Then the Holy Spirit transfers that into our cardia, the heart, and there it becomes epi- Gnosis, which that prefix, that prepositional prefix epi, E-P-I-G-N-O-S-I-S, that prefix means it's full or usable knowledge, full or usable knowledge, and the Holy Spirit doesn't automatically use it for us. At this stage, we have to use our volition one more time and decide to apply it at times. As epignosis, it's applicational for spiritual growth. When you're out of fellowship and operating on carnality or you just have academic knowledge, you can apply it and it produces nothing more than simple morality. It's no different from any cult member, some Jehovah's Witness or Mormon or some other Christian cult that emphasizes nothing more than morality. And that has no eternal value. It may give you some measure of stability in your life. It may help your family life. It may help your marriage. It may make you more financially responsible. But it's not going to have any long-term spiritual value and won't produce genuine spiritual growth. The problem we have today is... Most people confuse morality with spirituality. Spirituality has to do with the right relationship with God the Holy Spirit, defined as the filling of the Holy Spirit. And he fills our heart with doctrine, with the Word of God. And then he uses that to produce spiritual growth when we walk by him, Galatians chapter 5, 16 to 23, as we have studied many times. So Paul says, I want you to know something. Now, the reason I emphasize that statement... One of the basics of Bible study that I am beginning to emphasize and, and to teach, and every time I come back from WHW I'm always a little more sensitive to things like this, is that when you look at a at a paragraph, which is a basic joining of several sentences around the same theme, you look at a paragraph as a when you're going to prepare a message, you're going to teach, you identify within that paragraph your sentences. Those sentences present the logical progression of thought of the author. Now, a sentence may be one verse, a sentence may be several verses. In the King James Version, there is a tendency of the translators to try to make every verse an independent sentence, because it would read better. This was an era when a lot of people didn't necessarily read or have their own Bible to read in the early 1600s and so the translators understood the importance of reading the Bible out loud and they would read the Bible out loud to the congregations and so it was written in such a way that it would read well when it was read out loud so they paid attention to sentence structure rhythm and cadence the reason that many of you find it easier to memorize verses in the King James is not because that's what you grew up with You think that, but that's not right. The reason it's easier to memorize is because it has this rhythm and cadence to it that that makes it easier to remember. You look at some of these modern versions, there's no rhythm and cadence to it. The language is stultified, and it's difficult to get our mental fingers around it when we're trying to memorize that scripture. So the King James Version was written that way, but you take a passage like Ephesians 2, 1 through 7, that's one sentence in the Greek. In some English versions, it's four or five sentences. You break up a Greek sentence into four or five English sentences, you miss the main point. The main point that the author is trying to get across, or his main topic, is usually going to be com- conveyed in the independent clause or the main clause of a sentence in Paul. Paul is renowned for the way he just sort of slaps one subordinate clause on top of another and strings things out for page for page after page or verse after verse. May go on for eight or nine or ten or twelve verses. And if you want to get at what Paul's actually saying, you have to identify the main clause. That's the topic. His secondary and third points are all in his subordinate clauses. Well, if you look at this in your, in your English Bible, the first sentence actually goes down to the end of verse, or about the middle of verse four. Begins in verse one, moreover, brethren, I do not want you to be unaware that, or ignorant that all our fathers were under the cloud, all passed through the sea, all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea, all ate the same spiritual food, and all drank the same spiritual drink, for they drank of that spiritual rock that followed them, period. That's where that sentence ends. Now, what's the main clause in that sentence? The main clause is the first part of verse 1. Moreover, brethren, I do not want you to be ignorant. And everything else explains what they're not to be ignorant of. But that's the main idea. That's why Paul is emphasizing knowledge. Before you can have epinosis knowledge, you have to have academic knowledge. Before you have any kind of applicational knowledge in any field, whether it's surgery, whether it's law, whether it's education, whatever the field may be, from auto mechanics to computers, you always know more and have learned more about the subject than you actually apply or can apply. That's just the way it is. I always hear people say, well, you know, I'm so tired of learning. There's such an emphasis at your church on doctrine and teaching that, that you know, if we just applied all that we knew, we would be so, we'd be so much stronger. Well, the problem is you never apply all that you know. You only apply about four or five percent of what you know. So the issue isn't applying more of what you know. It's having more academic knowledge so that the percentage which remains the same, will represent a larger amount of applicational knowledge. If you know a 100 things and you're only going to apply four of them, then that's not as much as if you know 10,000 things and you're going to apply 400 of them. So the key is learning more. We're never going to learn everything there is to know about God, but that's our job And that is what the scriptures emphasize, that to love the Lord means we love his word and we know his word. And the problem is you have Christians run around all the time talking about, oh, how I love Jesus, and isn't Jesus wonderful, and that's a sign of immaturity. Whenever you see Christians who do a lot of God talk, praise God, isn't God wonderful, bless you, Jesus blessed me today, and they talk all this God talk, it's a sign of immaturity and usually they don't love the Word. Are these people spending five or six hours a week studying God's Word? Are they concerned on a daily basis about God's will and plan for their life throughout the day? Are they thinking about the Lord at different times during the day when they hit different crises during the day? No, no they're not. They, ju- they, they use these phrases because that's what they pick up in typical evangelical churches, but it's superficial. Jesus says over and over again, if you love me, you will keep my word. Well, to keep his word, you have to know his word. And you can't know his word unless it's a priority in your life to study it day in and day out, listen to tapes, and make it a regular part of your life. So Paul says, brethren, I don't want you to be ignorant. So we have to learn some things in the spiritual life. Now, there are... (coughs) Four things that he doesn't want them to be ignorant of, and they are all emphasized by the word all. He says, I don't want you to be unaware that. And in the Greek grammar, you have a word called tea. Looks like that in Greek, H-O-T-I, and it has three uses. It, the first use is causal, which we would translate because. The next two uses have to do with quotes. It introduces either an indirect quote or a direct quote. And it often is used in kind of an indirect sense where it says, I don't want you to be ignorant of something. And then we could almost just translate it by putting a colon there in English, and then you list the items that you're not supposed to be ignorant of. These four items emphasize what God had provided in his grace for all the Jews. It didn't matter how rebellious they had been, and that crowd that that, uh, uh, was delivered from slavery at the Exodus was the worst generation in Israel's history. Paul says, I don't want you to be ignorant, first of all, that all our fathers were under the cloud, all passed through the sea, Not not just the ones who were trusting God, because at that point, and that's a reference we'll look, in a minute, to the Exodus event when they were caught, literally between the devil and the deep blue sea, they were caught between Pharaoh's and Pharaoh's army, who was chasing them, and the Red Sea, and they were surrounded on two sides by small mountains, which gave them no place to escape. They were boxed in by, by Pharaoh and his his elite troops, his chariot troops, and his army. And they panicked, and they were scared to death. And Moses said, stand still and see the deliverance of the Lord. And it was at that time that Moses parted the Red Sea, and God opened up a way of, of escape for them. But they were panicking. They were really relying upon Moses and his leadership. They were not trusting God, yet it is all the fathers were under the cloud and all passed through the sea and all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. Now we're going to see that that those that section right there dealing with the cloud and the sea is analogous to the positional truth of what happens to every single believer at the instant of salvation. And then verses 3 and 4 emphasize God's grace provision After salvation, in in the history of Israel, it is the Exodus event and the crossing of the Red Sea when they pass from servitude and slavery in Egypt to freedom. That is analogous to salvation when we move from slavery to the sin nature to the new freedom we have in Jesus Christ. So it is the crossing of the Red Sea that is the picture from the Old Testament of what happens at salvation when we move from slavery to freedom. And so this is a picture of positional truth in the life of the believer. God provided everything they needed for all of them. Then, in the post-salvation or post-deliverance experience, God provided spiritual nourishment for them. This is analogous to The word of God to Bible doctrine for the believer. All ate the same spiritual food and all drank the same spiritual drink. For they drank, and here we're told what this represented, for they drank of the spiritual rock that followed them and that rock was Christ. Now that's about as far as we are going to get today. So we have five alls. All our fathers were under the cloud. All passed through the sea. All were baptized into Moses. All ate and all drank. The emphasis here is that they all had something, they all were provided for in God's grace provision, however not all of them took advantage of this divine grace provision. Now remember the context. Paul's challenging the self-absorbed, arrogant, self-indulgent Corinthians with the law of love and the law of personal sacrifice, so you have to be willing to give up certain things at times in the spiritual life as you advance, and the one thing that bothered the Jews in the wilderness is they had to give up, and I can, I can relate to this, they had to give up that good food back in Egypt, the good cuisine, the good seasonings, garlic and onions and all the things that make good food tasty. But in order to understand this, we have to go back and look at the Old Testament. This chapter is loaded with quotes and allusions to Old Testament events. And we face a couple of problems today, one of which is illiteracy, biblical illiteracy in the church. People don't know their Old Testament. They don't read it. They don't go over it. You should be reading the Bible all the time. Every day you should read a chapter or two just so you're aware of what is going on in the Scriptures, who's who and what's what. Where things are, so that when they're taught in church, you can understand them. When Paul says, when Paul refers to these events in chapter 10, his readers knew what he was talking about. He refers to 10 or 12 different verses, different sections of the Old Testament, and in a brilliant way pulls all of this together, and each verse quotes from a different section, refers to a different event, and he just moves through this like a machine gun, expecting his readers to be completely familiar with the entire history of Israel in the Old Testament and all of these passages. The problem is today that most people in most churches are not aware of these things, so we have to go back and spend a little time uh, catching up on this. So let's turn to, first on our way back to Exodus, let's stop at Psalm 78. Psalm 78 will give us a, a psalmist's interpretation of this historical event in Israel. This is this is a, a psalm of Asaph. Asaph was a professional musician. They had professional musicians in the temple. This is one thing that is important. For some reason, in fundamentalist circles, we get the idea that, that we ought to just operate with volunteers and, and people who are amateurs musically. Uh, in order to lead worship, but that wasn't the model in the Old Testament. In the temple, they had professional musicians because w- w- they understood the principle that if you're going to do all things to the glory of God, then you're going to do it well. You're going to pursue excellence, and that means you are going to get professionals and not amateurs. Now let's get down to about verse uh, Verse 12. Well, let's back up a little bit, uh, verse uh, 5, just to pick up the context. For he established a testimony, he being God, established a testimony in Jacob. That's a term for Israel. Jacob represents all of Israel. Jacob's other name that God gave him was Israel. And appointed a law in Israel which he commanded our fathers. That is a reference to the giving of the Mosaic law on Mount Sinai after the Exodus. That they should make them known to their children that the generation to come might know them. The children who would be born, that they may arise and declare them to their children, passing doctrine on from one generation to another in the context of the family. That they may set their hope, their confidence, that is, in God, and may not forget the works of God, but keep his commandments. They may not be like their fathers, a stubborn and rebellious generation. This is the interpretation of the Exodus generation. They were viewed by later generations as the worst generation in all of the history of Israel. That's why God did not allow them to go into the land, is because they never really trusted him. They were a stubborn and rebellious generation, a generation that did not set its heart aright. That is, they were not learning doctrine. They did not apply doctrine. They were continuously rejecting doctrine. And whose spirit, that is whose attitude, was not faithful to God. They were believers. The vast majority of the Exodus generation were believers. They had put the door on the I mean the blood on the doorpost at the um, at the Passover. They trusted God to deliver them. That is a sign of their salvation, but they did not trust God to provide for them after salvation. Verse 9, the children of Ephraim, this is another term for the Jews, children of Ephraim being armed and carrying bows turned back in the day of battle. This is the first battle they faced against the Amalekites when they came out of Egypt. They, they were originally losing until God uh, turned, uh, turned the tide for them and gave instruction to Moses. Verse 10, they did not keep the covenant of God. They refused to walk in his law. They forgot his works and his wonders that he had shown them. They had seen the ten plagues in Egypt. They had seen the miracle of God parting the Red Sea. They had seen the miracle of God providing manna every day. They had seen the miracle of God bringing water out of the rocks to supply their for their physical nourishment every day, and yet they didn't trust God. See, people think that if if only God would perform a miracle, then my friend would be saved, my parents would be saved, God would just do something. There's a false assumption there, and that is that even in the presence of the Lord Jesus Christ and the miracles he performed in the presence of the eternal Son of God, people rejected him. The issue is not empirical verification. People don't need miracles and then they'll believe. People have already chosen to believe or not to believe. Miracles will only confirm them. In their belief, but if they have turned against God, there is no miracle in history that will cause them to change. This is evidence even in the tribulation when the great prophets of Israel, Moses and Elijah, will return and perform signs and wonders unlike any miracles ever performed in history. And still the vast majority of people living on the earth at that time reject them, hate them, and they are executed uh, by the Antichrist. Miracles do not convince people in and of themselves of the truth. Verse 12, we read, Marvelous things he did in the sight of their fathers. In the land of Egypt, in the field of Zoan, he divided the sea and caused them to pass through. He made the waters stand up like a heap. In the daytime also he led them with the cloud. This is our reference to the cloud that we'll see in 1 Corinthians 10. And all the night with the light of fire, he split the rocks in the wilderness... Notice it's more than one time, as we learn from 1 Corinthians 10, this rock followed them in the wilderness, and the rock was Jesus Christ. For 40 years, when they got thirsty, water God provided water from the rocks uh, in abundance to provide the nourishment. Think about how much water 2 million people consume in a day. They say in America the average person consumes, one way or another, about 10 gallons of water. But let's, we use that in washing dishes and a number of other things. Let's reduce that to two gallons. You got two million people. That's four million gallons. They're out in the desert. So this isn't a this isn't a, a a rock or a few rocks where there's just a trickle of water. These are fountains of water that gush. Out of the rocks that God provides all along the way for 40 years in the wilderness. Because that generation, even though they were rebellious, they were provided for God, nourished them and provided for their nourishment through water and through the manna day in and day out that's his grace even though they rejected him and they were carnal and in rebellion God still provided for them that's the grace of God and the principle is that God blesses us not on the basis of who we are or what we have done but God blesses us on the basis of his character Verse 16, he also brought streams out of the rock and caused waters to run down like rivers in the desert. But how did they respond? Were they overjoyed with these miracles? Were they excited with this blessing? Did this stimulate them to greater obedience? No, just like most believers, they just sinned even more against him by rebelling against the Most High in the wilderness, And they tested God in their heart by asking for the food of their fancy. Yes, they spoke against God. They said, can God prepare a table in the wilderness? Behold, he struck the rock so that the waters gushed out and the streams overflowed. Can he give bread also? Can he provide meat for his people? They constantly tested God. Therefore, verse 21, the Lord heard this and was furious. So a fire was kindled against Jacob, and anger also came up against Jacob. Israel. This is where we're going to go in 1 Corinthians 10:1, where it says God scattered their bodies throughout the wilderness. And divine discipline, that, that, that generation of two million, were visited with some of the worst plagues. And they had the fiery serpents and a number of other things, earthquakes, that consumed vast numbers of them. In the wilderness. So Psalm 78 gives us the divine interpretation of history that that generation was the worst generation spiritually, even though they were saved. They were carnal, and as a result of that, they never experienced the blessing that God had for them in terms of taking them into the promised land. They never got there. Now let's slip back a little more to uh, the original event as it's recorded in scripture in Exodus chapter 14. Exodus chapter fourteen describes the Red Sea crossing. Now, skip back just a little bit in verse thirteen. We have our first mention of the cloud. We see in our passage in First Corinthians ten one that they, the fathers were under the cloud and all passed through the sea. It's an important point of exegesis. We read that the fathers were under the cloud, and there we find a, a, an imperfect tense in the Greek, which indicates continual action in the past. See, the cloud was with them through those 40 years. This is just to show you how precise the Greek is. They were, The fathers were under the cloud and all passed through the sea, yet when we get to that verb, diarchomai, they passed through the sea. That's an aorist tense which summarizes the, event, the situation as one event. They only passed through the sea once, but they were continuously being led by the cloud. So the first time we see this, this cloud mentioned is in verse 21. And the cloud symbolizes the presence of the pre-incarnate Jesus Christ who is the leader And the Guider of Israel, he is guiding them through the wilderness. And it's a picture of divine guidance as well as divine protection. So as they come out of Egypt, the Lord leads them uh, through a pillar of cloud to lead the way. And at night it became a pillar of fire to give them light. And this went on day and night. And verse 22 of chapter 13, He did not take away the pillar of cloud by day or the pillar of fire by night from before the people. God's grace is continuous. He always supplies, whether we take advantage of it or not. The supply is continuous, and it is more than enough. Then, as they escape from Egypt, as they're leaving Egypt, God hardens Pharaoh's heart. I'm not going to read through every detail or deal with every detail, but he hardens Pharaoh's heart, and so... Pharaoh calls his army together finally and decides, well, they're leaving, and I made a mistake. We were losing our labor force, so let's go get them. And in verse 6, he says, so he made ready his chariot and took his people with him. Also, he took 600 choice chariots. That means he's taking his elite chariot force with him to lead the way. And then all the chariots of Egypt with captains over every one of them. So he takes his army in hot pursuit of the Jews. And in verse 10 we read when Pharaoh drew near the children of Israel lifted their eyes and behold the Egyptians marched after them so they were very afraid they're not trusting God at all only Moses is trusting God and the children of Israel cried out to the Lord and uh, they blame Moses for all their problems now you just brought us out here to be killed and slaughtered in the wilderness we're gonna die, and Moses responds by saying to the people in verse 13, Do not be afraid. Stand still and see the salvation of the Lord which He will accomplish for you today. See, the principle in the faith rest drill is to relax and let God handle the situation. The principle is to stand still, to not be afraid, to not worry. These are mental attitude sins, and God, and it's a sign that we're not letting God handle the situation. We need to let God do the fighting for us. Verse 14, the Lord will fight for you, and you shall hold your peace. And then skip down, and as they're being pressured by the, by the uh, armies of Pharaoh, and they have the, the, the re, uh, Red Sea, actually the Reed Sea. It's not the Red Sea. That's a bad translation. The Hebrew says the Reed Sea, Sea of Reeds. And that is at their back, and they're trapped. And then in verse 19 we read, And the angel of God, this is the reference to the Lord Jesus Christ, identifying that the cloud is the Lord Jesus Christ, the angel of God who went before the camp of Israel moved and went behind them. See, that's the protection aspect. Before he's leading, now he's going to go behind the Jews. These two million Jews, he's going to, this pillar is going to stand between the armies of Pharaoh and the Jews to protect them so that they can have the time to escape. So, verse twenty it came between the camp of the Egyptians and the camp of Israel. Thus it was a cloud and darkness to the one. It gave light by night to the other, so it gave light by night, so that the one did not come near the other all that night. Then Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, and the Lord caused the sea to go back by a strong east wind all that night, and made the sea into dry land, and the waters were divided. So this is something that takes several hours as the waters are are pushed back. There's a wall of water on each side. The wind is so strong, it dries out the ground. They're not going out on mud. It's just hard packed. Remember, they have wagons. They have wheeled vehicles. They have, they have uh, perhaps some uh, beasts of burden, some cattle, uh, domestic animals. Two million people, two million adults over the age of 20-plus children and and all their goods and whatever, and that's going to take some time to get them across the water. So they're moving across through the night, and finally they cross, and then the Egyptians come after them. Now one thing that's interesting, just to note by way of observation, that the Pharaoh is mentioned along with his charioteers and his army down through the first half of chapter 14. But then the Pharaoh isn't mentioned again. It's up, it's always the Pharaoh and the captains of his chariots and his chariots and his army. And it's always the Pharaoh and all, is mentioned with them. But Pharaoh stops being mentioned with them after the parting of the Red Sea. So the Pharaoh did not go into the Red Sea. He's standing there commanding his troops and they all start crossing. And they're all destroyed when the waters come back together, but the Pharaoh wasn't destroyed. Now it's real easy to miss that, and a lot of people think the Pharaoh was destroyed, but the Pharaoh wasn't destroyed. He went back. He survived. This is, why, this is one of the reasons it's difficult to, to uh, identify the Pharaoh of the Exodus, because there's no accident. Exod- people have said, well, there's no Pharaoh that was killed in this manner. Well, carefully read the text. It doesn't say the Pharaoh was killed in this manner. So this is the sea. This is the emphasis of the cloud and the sea. Now in verse one we read, For I do not want you to be ignorant, brethren, that all our fathers were under the cloud, and all our an all passed through the sea. This is the this is symbolic. This is a type remember a type is a picture of uh, in the Old Testament of a spiritual truth or reality or perhaps a physical reality in the life of Christ in the New Testament. It foreshadows something in the New Testament. So this is a picture of positional truth, and we know that because of what Paul says in verse 2. He says, And all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. This is this ties these two verses together because we're talking about the cloud and the and the sea event. This signal signifies the baptism into Moses. Now baptism for many people uh, automatically means water. That somebody's going to get wet and that's the purpose of baptism, but actually there are eight baptisms in scripture. And only three of those baptisms involve the individual being baptized getting wet. Those are ritual baptisms. There are three ritual baptisms in Scripture. There is the baptism of John the Baptist, which was a baptism for the repentance of your sins. And it indicated, and baptism does two things. It, it, even though the meaning of the word, the literal meaning of the word baptism is dip, plunge, or immerse, the significance of baptism is identification and inauguration, identification and inauguration. You're identified with something, and it shows the inauguration in a new state. For example, in the ancient Greek army, the hoplite recruits, those were the basic uh, draftees that were brought into the army after they went through basic training. They would take their spears, and they would dip them, babto, they would dip them into a bucket of pig's blood. That was to identify their spear now with blood, with violence, with killing. And this inaugurated them. This was their graduation ceremony from boot camp into uh, regular military service. So this, the idea of baptism is that of identification and inauguration. So John's baptism was an identification with the kingdom that was coming. The baptism of Jesus is not a baptism Even though John performs it, it's not the same as all of the other baptisms of John because Jesus didn't need to repent from sin. He was sinless. His baptism is inaugurating him into his ministry, and it is an identification with the Father's plan. Believer's baptism is when a new believer, someone who has put his faith and trust in Christ alone, is baptized by immersion in water as a sign that he has been identified with Christ in his death, burial, and resurrection. That's what we call positional truth, Romans 6, 1-13. The believer is identified with Christ in his death, burial, and resurrection. When the believer goes under the water, it is a picture of his identification with the death of Christ. When he comes out of the water, it is identification with the resurrection of Christ and his entrance or inauguration into a new life, a new spiritual life. These three are wet baptisms, although among the dry baptisms, water is involved in two of them. In a negative way, so your ritual baptisms are the baptism of John the Baptist, Jesus and the believer's baptism, and the dry baptism. You have Jesus' identification with our sins on the cross, the baptism of the cross. Those who were with Noah were identified with Noah. That's called the baptism of Noah in First Peter three, and those who got wet were those who weren't baptized, and they died. Same thing with Moses. You didn't want to be wet in the baptism of Moses because those that were wet were the Egyptian soldiers, and they drowned. The ones who remained dry were the ones who were identified with Moses. And then this is a picture of the fourth dry baptism or real baptism, and that is the baptism of the Holy Spirit, which is our identification with, with Christ by means of the Holy Spirit. So this is the picture here of positional truth, what God provided for all of that generation, their deliverance from slavery to Egypt. It is a picture of our deliverance from slavery to sin and all that God has provided and supplied for us. And what happens after they cross the Red Sea is a picture of ongoing spiritual life. And that's where we'll pick up next time when we look at the issues related to the manna and and the water ongoing Christ, christian life but what we see here is that the, the exodus generation was were believers they were supplied positionally with everything they needed and yet they rejected it and the result is divine discipline and failure that's the warning to the corinthians is don't don't get seduced into the idolatry of the temple don't get seduced into emphasizing your own personal rights and keep take your eye off the goal. See this is the what we're going to see here spiritually is the relationship between the problem-solving device of impersonal love where you're willing to give up rights to the motivation from our personal sense of our eternal destiny. We'll pick that up next time with our heads bowed and our eyes closed. Father, we thank you for this opportunity to study your word. We thank you for the grace that you have given us that supplied everything we need in our lives. We thank you for what you provided at salvation, that Jesus Christ died on the cross as a penalty for our sins. He paid our penalty for us, so that the only issue in salvation is our acceptance of that death on our behalf. We don't have to impress you with how we feel about things. We don't have to impress you with with our sorrow over sin. We don't have to uh, join a church or get baptized or do any other thing in order to be saved. It's simply a matter of believing that Jesus Christ died on the cross as a substitute for our sins. Scripture says, He who believes on him is not condemned, but he who believeth not is condemned already, because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. Father, we pray that you would challenge us with the things that we have studied this morning. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.